Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, including our latest, The Instant Air Fryer Bible. We just did a Milk Street cooking class on air mm. fryers, and we love the air fryer more than we can say. You should check out that book, The Instant Air Fryer Bible, wherever cookbooks are sold, mostly <laughs> so you can maybe see a uh, peek inside our kitchen since it's all shot actually right there. But we're not talking about air fryers. Instead, we're going a long way away from that. Oh, yeah. We want to wade into the controversy about gas stoves. We want to have our traditional one-minute cooking trip. Bruce has an interview with Nils Johnson, the owner of Little Red Barn Brewery, and a discussion about starting up a brewery from scratch, which is always an interesting thing. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. We want to talk about gas stoves today. I know it's a political minefield. We are being barraged on every side. Use your gas stove. Don't use your gas stove. They're taking away your gas stoves. They're not taking away your gas stoves. And we want to talk a bit about how we got to this point. Well, how did we start getting to well, this point? Well, what triggered this whole point was in the United States. In the U.S. was last December, Richard Trumka Jr., a member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, spoke about the growing body of research demonstrating the harms of gas stoves, which is not anything new. And this is something he's, you know, we've talked about for a long time. But then the problem was a month later on Bloomberg News, he said products that can't be made safe can be banned and all hell broke loose. Yes, that's just absolutely what happened. And let's talk about this for a minute. And let's not talk about gas stoves versus electric stoves. And let's try to step away from the politics of this for a minute. And just think through this issue of gas stoves. Here is the truth of the matter. Um, It's not about gas stoves. It's about the culture we live in. In the last 30 years, the natural gas and propane industry have made an incredibly successful run at convincing all of us that gas is the best way to cook. They did this, of course, in order to sell natural gas and propane. But there's also intuitive parts about this, too. Well, yeah. I mean, you think about when you cook over gas, you're cooking over fire. It is just... It yep. is it is in our DNA. I mean, we started... <laughs> I doubt that, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, when we started cooking food as cavemen, we cooked it over fire. Yeah, so I still don't think it's in our DNA, but that, okay. <laughs> so there's something primal about cooking there over is. fire. There is. That is and, exciting, and it's, it's you want to do it. And for a lot of people have good memories of campfires, of being a kid somewhere with a campfire, being on a retreat with a campfire. It tags all kinds of sense memories in inside of us, making s'mores outside maybe when we're camping somewhere or as a little kid in the backyard. There's all kinds of ways that cooking over gas really tags important nostalgic memories in us. And let us also say, and this is actually accurate, that gas can be more responsive than many forms of electric cooking. It can. You turn the gas up, you turn the gas down, you instantly have a higher and lower flame. And on many 
not all, but on many electric-style cooktops, it takes a while for the temperature to change because you've heated up a glass surface, and now that glass surface has got to change. And right. so it's not always instant. And so I, I should also say that, and this is going back a long ways, but many years ago, a decade ago, Bruce and I used to teach cooking classes on Holland America cruises. And we did this because we got to have a beautiful cruise. They gave us a beautiful stateroom with a balcony. We got complete guest privileges. We didn't get paid for the job, but we got a nice cruise, and I got to go places like Easter Island mm. and Pitcairn Island that I wouldn't get to go normally in my life. So this was all a beautiful perk of teaching on Holland America. And as you probably know, ships don't have open flames. You can figure out why <laughs> ships don't have open flames and why they don't want to have open flames. So ships cook mostly on induction, and we did all our cooking demos on induction. And this is long before the political explosion of all this. I always said when we redo our kitchen, yes, we have a gas. Well, we have a propane stove. We don't have any natural gas at our house because we live so rurally. So we have a gas stove, but we run it on propane. But nonetheless, I always said whenever we redo our kitchen, I'm going to redo it to induction burning. It had nothing to do with the current political controversy. No. We like induction because it's quick, it's responsive, yep. and it is easy because it's an electronic control, it's easy to set it to a specific temperature. When you turn your gas stove on medium or low, you don't actually know what temperature you're setting your, your pan at, but an induction burner, you can actually set the burner to 200 degrees, to 20, 300, 325, right. so it's very precise. So now we've come to this moment in which this man has made a claim about, you know, products that can't be fixed, should be banned, and yada, yada, yada. And this broke out the entire outrage cycle that has gone on now. And this is what I I just want to come down to and talk about for a second, is we live inside of a marketing and political bubble. And it is in, it is engaged in creating outrage, desire, all of that inside all of us. The desire for a gas stove, they were better. Somehow you were up if you cooked on gas. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny because Bruce and I lived in a rent control department in Manhattan, and we had a gas stove, and we were hardly up when we <laughs> lived in Manhattan, to say the least. No, that we was... Were hard, we were trying to desperately figure out how to pay the rent, so we were hardly up in any way, but we had a gas stove. Did that make us somehow more refined? No, it was just what came with the apartment when we got it. And we live in this just kind of unbelievable bubble of manipulation. And it, it exists on a political level with outrage. It exists with industry lobbyists convincing us about gas stoves versus other kind of stoves. And it's very hard in this bubble to figure out exactly what is going on because it's all it's all, what do I want to say? It's all manipulated to get a response out of you. So in the end, when it comes to cooking, you have a choice. And you still have a choice. You're going to have a choice for a long time whether you want to cook with gas or propane or electric. And even within those categories, you have choices. So let's talk a little bit about those choices. Yeah, well, you mean in terms of cooking? Yeah, that what, what are your choices when you go to choose a gas stove or propane stove versus what are your choices when you go to choose an electric stove? Well, what are the pros and cons? Well, an electric stove, it depends on the kind you get. The old coil stove, such as my mom had when I was growing up, mm -hmm. isn't very responsive. It is more efficient in modern terms because of the way electricity is produced versus the way sometimes natural gas is produced, not all times. So it is more efficient. 
efficient as a way to uh, cook. It can also be more expensive with rising electricity rates. This is true. Electricity rates all over the U.S. are going through the roof. So the cost of cooking on electric is going to be something you have to figure in if you choose to go electric. Now, there are other forms of electric that don't use as much power. Part of why those coils Mark talked about use a lot of power is these are metal coils that heat up red hot. Right. And so that takes a lot of electricity right, right, to heat them up right, red hot. Right, right. Induction, Mark talked about, we used on the ship, uses magnetic waves. And the magnetic waves actually heat up the metal of the pan without creating heat themselves. So they use much right. less energy. Right. And they're instant. They're instant right. on. They're instant off. That's right. And they are incredibly efficient, the induction burners. But they don't give you the thrill of gas or propane. And let's just face it, they don't. The thrill of gas and propane is lighting a fire or clicking on a fire, as it were, and cooking. And yes, that's right. Most stoves in gas stoves in the United States are not vented to the outside of the house. And so there is a methane problem in the house and there is a toxin problem in this. That's not a joke, but there is is with Windex, too. So <laughs> part it's of... It's absolutely true. So part of the outrage, manipulation, desire culture we live in is crazy. Let me give you an example of this. The price of eggs. As you may or may not know, inflation has cooled dramatically in the United States. But currently, the current outrage manufacturer is all about the price of eggs. Now, listen... There was a huge avian flu outbreak. The U.S. egg industry lost millions of chickens in the last year. But at this point, all those chickens have been replaced. And what happened is the price of eggs escalated because of the lack of birds. All those birds have been replaced. Industry profits are up over a thousand percent year over year for eggs and the price of eggs have not come down so there was a shortage the price jumped now there's no shortage but the price is staying high and inside of that you are being manipulated to believe that eggs are a product or the price of eggs is a product of inflation in fact there's much more going on behind the scenes than any of us is conscious of because again we live in this desire outrage bubble yeah and we live in a society of corporate greed and so the price of gasoline the price of eggs things that can come down once the shortages and those issues are resolved don't because of corporate greed now in the end does that help society in some ways yes because retirement funds go up because those stocks go up so there is a plus side of some of that but not for everybody right not everybody has money invested i mean if you just think about it over the last year we had reporters hanging out in front of gas stations and then we had reporters hanging out you know in some other aisle of supermarket and now we have reporters hanging out in front of eggs because it's a story that gets traction because you hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it and this is the same way that we have always been manipulated we've been manipulated and i'm not suggesting there's and when i say manipulated let me back up i'm not suggesting there's anything nefarious about it i'm suggesting this is how marketing Mm. how news how all of attention grabbing works 
in a capitalist culture. This is how it works. It started with advertising, right? I mean, advertising is manipulation. And of back course. in the 40s and 50s and smoke camel cigarettes and drink Budweiser beer or whatever it was, was all a way to get you to want something. So let's admit it. Let's Here's my food take. Let's admit that we've been manipulated by the gas industry to thinking it's better. Let's admit that there are ways that gas is really fun to cook on and it really works well. Let's admit that there are problems with gas, that it does, in fact, leak methane and gas stoves are not vented to the outside. And let's admit that in the current moment, we are being manipulated into stances and outrage. And let's take it all back and step way back and say, okay, what's best for me? What's best for my family? Mm. For example, right now, Bruce and I wouldn't be able to change out our stove. It's not because we necessarily don't want to, but listen, I, right now in our lives, I don't want to go spend $7,000, $10,000 on a new stove. I just don't want to do it. Yep. So we wouldn't change out our, our propane stove, our propane again, because we live so rurally. So we can't do that. I might think to myself, hmm, maybe I should. And there is some difference between propane and natural gas, we should say. But at the same time, this is what we can do right now. There are some cooking methods, though, that I will say tend to work better with one over the other. And that's wok cooking. And we've talked a lot about wok cooking and yep. Asian cooking in this podcast. And wok cooking, for the most part, is better when you have a nice big jet flame. Right. That is how it works best. And it's interesting because, you know, Kenji Lopez-Alt wrote the book The Walk last year. It was a huge best-selling book about how to cook and walks. And when he went on tour for this book, he had with him a walk that was an induction walk. And he had an induction burner that fit the walk perfectly. So the walk fit into this concave bowl of an induction burner because the way induction burners work is they create heat in the pan where the pan touches the cook surface. So this cook surface was curved, which made the entire bottom of the wok from the bottom of the bowl all the way up to the sides a heated cooking surface. And that's brilliant, but that's really the only way you're going to get the same effect in a wok with electric that you would get in gas. But otherwise, most things can be cooked either way. Yeah. And again, I just want to say that if Bruce and I redid our kitchen, I have this theory that I would like the oven and stove to go away. I would like to build a big center island with a hood over it. I would like to have induction burners that I can pull out from underneath. I can put them on my butcher box counter of my island. I can make whatever I'm making on as many burners as I want. And at the end of the night, I can wipe them down and put them back in storage under the the, the, the block. And I would have a, a basically a speed rack oven as a chef does, an electric speed rack oven. That's how I would do it. Imagine living without a stove. I think yeah. it's actually really kind of a cool idea. I don't think we would ever sell our house no, if we no, went to think because most people, people wanna, want stoves. People want to walk in and see the Viking or the wolf. And, they, you know, they want to see this really fancy stove. But I just want to say that Bruce and I wrote 12 cookbooks on a very crappy <laughs> Manhattan uh, gas stove. It Tilted. It didn't and even have a gas oven. Don't it had a gas oven, too. Yeah. It wasn't even an electric. It wasn't even a dual fuel. It was really an old, crappy, tilted down into With the left. With a pilot light. 
Yeah, right? it was crazy. Yes, the oven had a pilot light. I didn't. It wasn't even an electric ignition. No, it had a pilot light, and it yeah, it it sloped back into the lift, and we wrote eleven cookbooks on that crappy old stove, and it was gas, and we were certainly not up. So the let's say here's the big takeaway. It's just step back and think about the way that all of our desires for food in the food industry and all of our desires on many other levels are manipulated, massaged, created, fabricated around us. What does that have to do with what you want? If you want to have the same stove as your neighbor and that's really important to you, bully for you. If you want to make other choices, bully for you. I, I find it all just really important occasionally just to step back and say, look, we've all been trained to think certain ways. We've all then been manipulated into holding those as beliefs. And in fact, maybe sometimes we should just step back and do what we think is right for ourselves. Before we get to segment two, our one-minute cooking tip, I want to ask you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You won't miss a single episode. And leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Just go down to the bottom of wherever it is you get your podcasts and click five stars, please. That would be nice. And just say anything. Say, nice podcast. Love these guys. It all helps with the analytics. The more comments, the more people find out about us. And we are unsponsored. We love to talk about whatever we want to talk about. And so we get to do that. Because... Like gas stoves and <laughs> eggs and all that, and which we... we couldn't do if we were sponsored by somebody. And we get to do it because you listen and because you like us and because you review this podcast. So share it, like it, and on to segment two. This is our traditional one-minute cooking tip, and this time it's all about fresh steaks. If you want to know how to make a fresh steak taste like a dry-aged steakhouse steak, all you have to do is take some powdered dried mushrooms, like you know, dried shiitakes, put them in your spice grinder, add a little white pepper, and a few drops of soy sauce. Rub those on the steaks, let them sit for about an hour. What that does is it just gives it this umami funkiness that you mm -hmm. only get mm -hmm. from a dry-aged mm -hmm. steak. The interior of the steak, we will admit, does not taste like a dry-aged no, steak. No, but the outside but there's does. enough material from the dried mushrooms, white pepper, and soy sauce on the outside of the steak that you can almost fool yourself that this is a long, dry-aged steak, the kind that you'd pay big bucks for in a steakhouse on just a run-of-the-mill strip steak or ribeye. Up next in segment three, Bruce's interview with Nils Johnson. He is the one of the owners, I should say, right? One of the owners of Little Barn Brewery in Winstead, Connecticut. And this is always an interesting subject for us because we love interviewing food entrepreneurs, people who have stepped out and opened a food business on their own despite the odds. And believe me, if you know about Winstead, Connecticut, there were a lot of odds. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Nils Johnson. He is the owner of Little Red Barn Brewery in Winstead, Connecticut. Man, they have some amazing beers, great atmosphere, food trucks come in, live music. You need to go down there and check it out. And today, we're going to talk to Nils about what it's like to be a beer brewer full-time and to open your own business. So, hey, Nils. 
Hey, Bruce. Uh, thanks for having us on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You opened your craft beer brewery about three years ago, just before COVID in Winstead. And for people who don't know, that's Litchfield County. It's up near the Berkshires. And I've seen your brewery, a ton of equipment, huge space, but you didn't start out in that huge space. Tell me about your journey that brought you to be a professional beer brewer. That's an interesting journey. I actually really started when my partner, Matt, got a Mr. Beer kit from his uh, wife for Christmas. Uh, he made a pretty horrible beer, but he fell in love with the, uh, the, the concepts of it. And then uh, his brother, uh, Nathan, got involved. They were brewing in the kitchen. And uh, I love to sample beer, so they, got, they dragged, us, uh, dragged us in. And uh, we had a blast. And finally, our families, our, particularly our wives, uh, hated the smell of uh, the, the brewing process. <laughs> So we had to find a new home and uh, got blessed. My father had a uh, old horse barn on his property, a little red barn. So, you know, that's where our club started, really took off. It was in a little red barn in Barkhampton, Connecticut. Back there, you were just brewing beer for yourself, right? Yeah, we would get together every Sunday morning. We would brew beer. We would take out the Coleman stove, make breakfast, and uh, listen to the 50s, 60s music, sing, dance, drink, and brew beer. It was no intentions other than just having some fun. So how did that grow into making beer for other people? Well, you know, we were giving the beer away for gifts and having a blast. And there was one uh, festival that we went to that uh, raised money for Fidelco Dogs. There were 10 to 12 established breweries there, but uh, we knew the owner. So, hey, guys, we hand out some of your home brews, have some fun with it and, you know, get some feedback. And we noticed that we had one of the longer lines at the event, but it was really at the end of the night when vendors came up saying, hey, people are raving about the home brewers porter. Can we try it? And we gave it to them like, wow, this is great. Where do you guys brew this? And we're like, oh, we brewed it in a barn. <laughs> and they go, no way. You know, who do you guys work for? This is really good. Like, no, no, we brewed this in the barn. And that's when we went from a club. We called ourselves a brewery in training. And the seed was set to uh, what you see now. What was the transition like from that little red barn that you were brewing for yourselves to this Beautiful, huge space you have in Winstead. Well, what uh, we did is we set a lot of little benchmarks, you know, you know, because uh, I am conservative. My uh, my partners, Matt and Nate, knew from the start this is what they wanted to do, and they believed in the concept. I'm a little more cautious. So we kept setting these benchmarks, and we kept meeting them, which kind of surprised me. Then we started doing public tastings. You know, if someone were having a party, we would donate our beer. We would talk about it. We'd get feedback. And it really kind of got to the point where uh, uh, it was a full, full steam ahead and we had something that people believed in. That's pretty amazing that you were willing to just give away your product to see what people thought and to improve it. A lot of people wouldn't be willing to do that. Well, you know, you know branding is very important. And again, I, I guess, uh, again, being conservative, I was more looking for ways out. And this was my way, hey, you guys, you know, maybe the beer's not as good as I thought it was. And it was actually better. <laughs> <laughs> Backfired on you. <laughs> yes, it did. And, you know, I was in a career field that I was in for 27 years and wasn't happy in it anymore. So this was kind of like therapy. You know, I worked 60 hours plus a week at the at, at the real job. And then as we worked on this dream, that was fun. That was therapy. I, I wrote a business plan and I, I took a job that I didn't really enjoy, but I took it to get my wife through nursing school. And, you know, I, I didn't like it. I, I get laid off and I, I call my wife on the ride home. I go, hey, honey, guess who I finally got laid off? And she goes, congratulations. Now go open your f***ing brewery. And, <laughs> and my, that, that's actually funny. Uh, so today, it's the fifth year anniversary of me being laid off from that job. 
So five years ago, I, I was the LRB's first full-time employee. <laughs> well, congratulations. And you have really grown it into an amazing business. And when I've been in the brewery, I noticed you have a dozen different beers on tap at any time, which is really amazing. Where do the recipes for these beers come from? One of my favorites uh, is called Squider's Tavern Ale. And it's a beer that we actually were inspired to brew for a historical society in Mark Hampstead, who happens to be in Squire's Tavern. So we uh, we researched a colonial beer. We got the same ingredients that were available to the colonists. And, uh, you know, one of our top sellers were, were born. The other ones, you know, we, we uh, beers that, that we that we would like, that we liked over the years, that, you know, we're like, gosh, you know, they can make it. You know, we'll, we'll figure out the ingredients and do it ourselves. Are there any styles of beer that are more fun to make than others? Well, you know, any new beer is the most fun one to make because you get to use the, your creativity to come up with, uh, you know, with a, with a new new recipe. So it's, yeah, you know, we're always innovating. You know, we always try to bring out something new and, you know, you know for the uh, head brewer, Nathan, and his assistant, his brother, Matt, that's when they have the most fun, you know, is researching it, something that's never been done. And then you brew it and you wait 18 days and you pray to God that it's good. <laughs> and when you start a new beer like that, do you ever do it on a small scale first to see if you even like it or do you jump right into the large scale? Small scale would make way too much sense. No, we just jump in with both feet and, and pray to God. And we are absolutely blessed. There's only been one beer that we've brewed uh, in our almost uh, three and a half years that didn't make it to market. So they've done a nice job. But I bet it wasn't wasted. No, it was that bad. <laughs> hey, you know, if the cost of producing beer wasn't an issue, you didn't have to think about your ingredients. You didn't have to think about selling it. You could make any beer you wanted to. What would you make? You know, uh, I love the stouts and the, and, the, and the porters. And there's so many different things that you can do with them. Uh, from chocolate to vanilla. We, we actually made one of my favorites that we worked with a local coffee roaster. They came up with a blend of beans that would match perfectly with our porter. It was well you know, accepted by people, but it was that was my, one of my pet projects. So it's coffee and beer. You put the two together. That's just perfection. <laughs> Nils, your brewery was welcomed into the community with open arms, and it's really a very popular place. And how is the beer you make connected to the local area? Well, I tell you, if you look at a lot of, you know, our names, we try to connect them to, to kind of local landmarks. Uh, like a good example is the Mad River Pilsner. Uh, the, the, the Mad River in 1955, it was a river that wiped out the Connecticut Valley and it happens to now run right in front of the brewery. More now of an angry stream, but at one point it was uh, the Mad River. And and I think, you know, a lot of our beers uh, that we've, we've used to fundraise for local charities, and it's, you know, I, we never thought that uh, how important the charity work would, would have been for our business. It's something that was part of our mission statement. It was important to us. And, uh, but it's been, it's been a great driver, you know, for our business has gotten our name out there. And that's just been a happy uh, uh, bonus to it. And you don't serve food at the brewery for now, but you do have food trucks that come on a regular basis. And some of them are really interesting you have a lobster truck coming how has the addition of the food trucks impacted your business what's fun about the food trucks you know we try to do you know multiple different trucks a week so every time you, you can come to the brewery five times in a row and have five different dining experiences so you know and some of the more popular trucks you know, of 20 30 people they'll all come here just because that truck's here and now they get introduced to the yeah, to the brewery. So it's been a huge, uh, uh, great for marketing. It's it's great for business, and it's uh, they they feed the staff for free, so it's great for us. <laughs> oh, that's really that's very nice. 
So I want to end with a personal question. Is working in a brewery different than what you thought it would be? Actually, yeah. I, I got to say, you know, like, uh, it was, it's been more challenging, which everyone warned me that it would be than I, I thought it would be. Uh, I am blessed. I have two amazing partners, you know, so we have nice separation of work, but it's uh, been harder, but much more rewarding. You know, the, we've helped fire victims. We help food kitchens, we have a, a, a woman's shelter. And the joy that comes with that, you can't put into words. You can't put that into a business plan. Congratulations with uh, where it's come so far and where I know you're going to be going. Nils Johnson, owner of Little Red Barn Brewery in Winstead, Connecticut. If you're in the area in Litchfield County, check them out. They are an amazing place. Nils, thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Bruce, this was an honor. Thank you very much. Okay, that was a kind of just i don't know what inspiring interview mm -hmm. what is he it? is he is very inspiring he's so up and bubbly and happy and yep. just the perfect kind of guy to be opening a brewery yeah and in winston too winston is a town uh, not so far from us and it is a collapsed mill town and it has always been just on the verge of utter dissolution and that they decided to move to this brewery there and open it there it's just done wonders for that town i mean really it's crazy what it's done for winstead it's you know everyone's been saying for the 16 years we lived up here that winstead is on the brink of a comeback well yeah. maybe we're actually starting to have a comeback yeah because the, he made a place where people want to go where people want to drive to they want to get there they want it's really convivial inside it's really nice inside it's a destination it's not fancy um you know it's not no. incredibly up it's not like some you know oh good god manhattan brew pub <laughs> no it, it's it has really a much cool. more local vibe a quieter vibe you know and nice. it's right across the street from the american museum of tort law oh ralph nader's <laughs> museum to himself so yes it is right across the street from the museum of tort law in which you can see all the cases that ralph nader ever won oh huzzah <laughs> Before we get to our next bit, let me just say that we have a newsletter. You may not know this, but there is actually a Bruce and Mark newsletter. Would you like to have that newsletter? It's got all kinds of tips and tricks and things about our personal life. Um, the we the one went out was about grief and cooking and the connection between the two. If you'd like to get that newsletter, you can go to our website, bruceandmark.com. There's a form right on the landing page, the splash page where you hit the website. Scroll down a little bit. You'll see it. Subscribe to our newsletter. You can put your name and email address in there. And let me say, guaranteed, 100%, we will never sell your email or give it to anyone else. So 100% guarantee, and you can get our newsletter. Okay, our final and traditional last segment, what's making us happy in food this weekend? I'm going to start okay. and say that I have learned, and listen, I have done a lot in this food career and been around the block a lot of times, and I could never make an appropriate hard-boiled egg until the last couple weeks. And the reason why is because I don't really like hard-cooked eggs all the way through the way my mom made them when she made deviled eggs. I like the soft center of the eggs that you find in ramen and I never could get that right and I finally saw I'll admit a video on YouTube and somebody said don't put the egg on the bottom of the pan use a silicon rack or an egg holder to lift the eggs up off the superheated surface of the bottom of the pan 
Six minutes, large eggs, soft, nice, slightly runny centers. Oh, they are fabulous. Now, let me just say, six minutes is you put the cold egg from the fridge into yep. the already boiling water. Yep. And that's when you start counting your six minutes. Yep. Transfer it to some cold water for about two minutes, peel them, and... Mark is right. They have those runny centers that are yeah. quite amazing. The way you get them in ramen. I could mm-hmm. never get it right until somebody said, don't put it on the superheated bottom of the pan. And I'm like, oh, because I always just dump the eggs in the way my grandmother and my mother did and let them sit on the bottom of the pan. So we actually got our silicone rack out, out of an Instant Pot and <laughs> put it in the bottom of a saucepan and put the eggs on that silicone rack that came out of an Instant Pot. And it, they, they now just work like uh, like a charm. Okay, so what's making you happy in food this week? What's making me happy this week? Grass-fed strip steaks. I was out <laughs> running errands yesterday, and I stopped in Whole Foods to pick up some stuff, and they had the most beautiful-looking grass-fed organic strip steaks, and I bought us each one. And despite the fact that it's freezing out and that the driveway has four inches of slush and ice and the oh. ice is falling off oh. the roof, I dragged the charcoal grill out and I lit my hardwood charcoal and I grilled these steaks over charcoal you did. and I made baked potatoes in the air fryer and that's what made me happy. It it was just really a classically down, <laughs> you know, I guess strip steaks aren't down. down Grass-fed strip steaks, not yeah, down. It's not down, but I mean, it's just this is meal what I would have had in Texas growing up as just dinner. So a baked potato, except we would have also had a canned pear as salad. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that, but that's a whole different and sad story. So that's our podcast for this week. Thank you for being along with us. Thanks for being here and listening to us talk for a minute about the marketing desire outrage bubble that we all live in, especially when it comes to food and the things that we consume. It's just really important to step back from the outrage and take a breath and think about what's best for you and what decisions you want to make outside, and it's almost impossible to step out of it, but outside of the marketing bubble. There's our tip about dry aged steaks, what's making us happy food this week, and a great interview with a food entrepreneur. You'll get more interviews, more great conversation, and more tips on what's making us happy in food this week on further episodes of Cooking with Bruce and Mark and go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and share what's making you happy in food this week because we would love to know. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.